Thank you, Graham, for reading from the text. And thank all of you for your presence this If you would please, we're going to come back to this passage in our study. But if you would please for now, turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. In the text of Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a circumstance where there have been those who have circulated among these Galatian churches, teaching them that unless you receive the law of Moses and be circumcised, reading from Galatians. But if you'll note in Galatians chapter 3, I want to begin reading in verse 14. Verse 14. Now I know that this, well, let me begin in verse 13 to kind of get the beginning of the sentence. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that upon the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, Yet when it hath been confirmed, no one maketh it void or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham were the promises spoken, and to his seed. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Now this I say, a covenant confirmed beforehand by God. The law which came 430 years after doth not disannul, so as to make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no more of promise. But God hath granted it to Abraham by promise. What then is the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise hath been made. And it was ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could make alive, verily righteousness would have been of the law. But the scripture shut up all things under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept in ward under the law shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed, so that the law is become our tutor or schoolmaster, some translations say, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith is come, we are no longer under a tutor. For ye are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ, there can be neither Jew nor Greek. There can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male and female. For ye are all one man in Christ Jesus. And if ye are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. What a profound text. When we read in this text, I want you to note, and I hope that I tried to distinguish at least, the difference between the plural and the singular use of the word promise. The word promise in the reading of the American Standard Translation from which I'm reading occurs seven times in this context. The word promises, plural, occurs two times in this text. 
The focal point of what the apostle is addressing, obviously then, is what God promised, the promise of God, singular. Now, in our study, I want to suggest to you that what we're reading in this text is Paul's presentation of the theme of the Bible. And I hope that we can see that and see that really clearly before our study is concluded. Some among these churches were teaching, as we said, that if you're a Gentile, that is, if you're not a Jew, and I think that needs defining sometimes, there were only two possible kinds of people you could be. You were either a Jew or you were of the nations. That's what the word Gentile means. So if you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile. That's, that's, that's the way that that works. But these Jews had been under the law of Moses for about 1,500 years. And circumcision took them all the way back to the time of Abraham. And their confidence was in their heritage. And they were teaching, in other words, you can't become a Christian unless you first become a Jew. I would suggest to you the prejudice that that sets forth. And we want to note that as the apostle addresses the Galatians in the very beginning, that's the backdrop that causes him to marvel, chapter 1, verse 6, that ye are so quickly removing from him that called you in the grace of Christ unto a different gospel, which is not another gospel, only there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And that's why he says, But though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than that which we preached unto you, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And he repeats that. The urgency of this is some were binding something that the apostles had not taught. Paul therefore then called that another gospel. It's a different gospel. It's different from that which we preached. And consequently, let him be accursed. Though it be us or even an angel from heaven, doesn't make any difference who he is. If he's preaching something different, it's not the gospel of God. It is another gospel. Now you'll note in chapter 2 verse 5, Paul said, To whom we gave place in the way of subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He had taught them the gospel. And now here we find there are teachers that are simply adding one thing to it. And Paul says the consequence of that, you can't just add one. You have to add the whole thing back in. If you keep one point of the law, then you've got to keep all of it. And so this is a very serious matter, a very, very serious matter. And so as we look at this, we want to trace this all the way back to what God said in the beginning. You say, Mick, you're going to preach another long sermon. Well, I'm going to try to be concise. But if you'll turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read of the creation in the beginning. You say, well, you're going all the way back to there. Yes. And there's a reason for that. You'll note in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, we read of the creation of man. And then we learn in verse Verse 16, God said, Concerning every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt die. Now here we read of the beginning of law. God has always held man accountable to law. In the third chapter we read, 
that the devil came to the woman and he said, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, Of the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but of the tree of the, uh, uh, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now has Eve understood God's law? She knows what God's law is, doesn't she? There's a tree over it. We can't have that. We can have everything, but we can't have that. Now you would think that would be a real simple rule. and We can keep one law, right? But the text tells us that as she was tempted to eat of the tree, she saw that it was good, verse 6, for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and she gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now what's entered, entered into God's good world? Sin. Did the very thing God said not. We read in this text, always has consequence, doesn't it? Ours does too. But as we read in this text, it continues in verse 9, Jehovah God called unto the man and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now the simple answer to that would be yes. But rather Adam said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now ultimately, Adam has blamed God. He's pointing his finger at the woman, but back to God, because it was God who created the marriage relationship. And then God said to the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And Jehovah said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, cursed art thou above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go and shalt eat, uh, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, that word means hostility, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." Well, let me pause just here and say that if that's all we had, I wouldn't have a clue what the Bible is about. But that's not all we have. The rest of the Bible is to help us to understand verse 15. Now take that home with you. Verse 15 is explained with the rest of the Bible. Okay? Now we might raise the question, can you recall in your study of the Bible who the seed of woman is? Well, you don't have to wonder about that very long because as you come into the New Testament in books like Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it tells us that in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Who's the seed of woman? That would be the Son of God. And the seed of woman, He said, is going to bruise thy head, that is the head of the serpent, but you're going to bruise His heel. Now, a bruise to the heel, it might hurt a whole lot, but it's likely not to be fatal. But a bruise to the head, if you want to kill a snake, what do you do? You stomp him on the head. This is what the seed of woman would do to the serpent. Now, I know I say it a lot, but isn't that simple? Here's the illustration of what God said the seed of woman is going to do. Now, how's that going to come to pass that the seed of woman is going to destroy Satan? In fact, I'm told that they're on the head. Well, time passes. 
In fact, I'm told that there are about 20 or about 10 generations, rather, that pass from this till we get to the time of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 and nothing more said about God's promise. In Genesis chapter 6, we've got a flood that overwhelms the whole world and only Noah and Mrs. Noah and their children and their wives. That's all that was saved. Everybody else perished. And then we read of them coming out of the ark that Noah had prepared, being moved by godly fear. And another about ten generations comes till we get to the time of Abraham. And as you read the text that Brother Grant read to us just a few moments ago, Abraham is promised three things. And in that text, God said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into the land that I will show thee. God's going to show him where to go. The Hebrew writer tells us that Abraham got up and he went into the land not knowing where he was going. God telling him where. And the next verse tells us, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and be thou a blessing. And then the next verse tells us, That in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now here's something special. And we want to see how this begins to unfold as we continue to read in our Bible. God promised Abraham a land. He promised to make of him a great nation. And he said that in thy seed all families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, at this point, Abraham's old and he doesn't have any children. How's this going to come to pass? Make a great nation out of it? Don't have any children. No descendants at all. And as God continues in this of this, quite fascinating, that young eye, as you'll turn to the 17th chapter, of the book of Genesis and read verse 16. God said concerning Sarah, I will bless her and moreover I will give thee a son of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. The next verse tells us that Abraham laughed. Now it's not that he laughed in disbelief. But can you imagine a man that's soon to be a hundred years old and his wife ninety years old having children? Not laughing because it's humorous, but laughing at the strangeness of such a thing. And then in the 18th chapter, we know that Sarah laughed. But as we come to Hebrews chapter 11, we know that both Abraham and Sarah believed what God said. But just the irony of it. A man that age having children, a woman that age, well past the age of bearing children, is going to have a son. Time passes. And at the appointed time, we learn that Sarah conceived about a year after God had promised you're going to have a son. And you read about that in Genesis chapter 21. At the set time of which God had spoken, this thing came to pass. And Abraham called that boy Isaac. In his ripe old age, now he's had a son. Can you imagine the pride that he felt in this little boy? And then when we come to Genesis chapter 22, the text tells us that God said to Abraham, Take now thy son. Thine only son, whom thou lovest, and take him upon the mountain that I will show thee, and offer him there as a sacrifice. Can you see old Abraham's heart just sink? But the text tells us in verse 3 that he rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he claved the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. 
And when he saw the place, he lifted up his eyes and he said to those young men that were with him, look carefully at verse 5. Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and come again to you. Did you get that? We're going to go up on that mountain. We're going up there to sacrifice your son. Yes, sir. That's exactly what I'm going to do. How was Abraham reasoning and why? We noted this earlier in our series of studies as we looked at the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter in verse 17. And there the New Testament writer tells us, By faith Abraham being tried offered up Isaac, yea, he that had glad to receive the promises was offering up his only begotten son, even he to whom it was said in Isaac, shall thy seed be called, accounting that God is able to raise up even from the dead, from which he did also in a figure receive him back. Now, brethren and friends, when we read the text of Genesis 22, we're moved, and the question is frequently asked. I don't think I could do that. Could you? And Abraham was reasoning not on the premise of his emotion and his love for his son. He was reasoning on the basis of what God promised. And the text tells us that Abraham believed God. He believed what he said. Noting that God could even fulfill that promise if it meant raising that boy from the dead. But I'm going to go kill him because that's what God said. Now would you have that kind of trust? And that's the word in what God promised. We're going to ask that question a little bit later. But would you have that kind of trust? Well, we know that Abraham went upon that mountain, and as he drew back the knife, an angel stayed his hand, and his faith had been demonstrated, and he did not kill his son. It had been proven, his faith, his confidence in what God had said. A ram was provided, and young Isaac lived. Young Isaac grew to adulthood, and he had sons. In fact, he had two, Jacob and Esau. And God promised, shall all families of the earth be blessed. And I'm going to give you this land. That promise was repeated unto Jacob, and you can read that in your Bible. In Genesis chapter 28, there beginning in verse 13. Now Jacob had 12 sons, and you can read their names in Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 22 through essentially the end of that chapter. And it's from these men that we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. And we note that Jacob's name was changed to Israel, thus the 12 tribes of Israel. Now what we want to note in that is that out of those sons that Jacob had, God again made a selection. He was going to bring this all about through one son, and that would be, his name would be Judah. And you can read that in your Bible in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, which says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the obedience of the people be. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. God has again made choice. Now why is that so important? It's so important because we see that God always does just exactly what He promised. Do you believe that's so? He always does just exactly what He has promised. Well, it's at this point that we then begin to read that the conclusion of the book of Genesis, the lengthy story of Joseph. 
And Joseph is well aware of the promises, the promises and the promise that God has made. How do we know that? As Joseph is about to die in the 50th chapter of the book of Genesis, it tells us in verse 24 that Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, but God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land into the land to which he sware unto Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now you well know how that Joseph wound up in Egypt to start with. His brothers hated him. Egypt sold him to a caravan of, of uh, traders that were on their way down into Egypt. And when Joseph got down there, you recall how he was sold again, wound up in Potiphar's wife and Potiphar's wife. Wound up in Potiphar's household where Potiphar's wife tempted him to commit fornication. And she lied about young Joseph, and young Joseph was put into prison. Things eventually went well for him, and he wound up second in command of all of Egypt, preparing for the great plagues that were about to come upon Egypt, the famine that was about to come upon Egypt. Including Joseph's own brothers had to travel down to Egypt to buy grain. Now you're all familiar with that, right? And eventually Joseph identified himself to his brothers and sent orders for them to come down into the land of Egypt where he would care for them during these days of famine. Now the reason that I want you to be aware of that is how many of them came down. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 5 that there were 70 people of Joseph's family that came down from the land of Canaan and were cared for down here in the land of Egypt. You say, well, why is that so important? Well, that's so important because those people begin to grow and multiply and grow and multiply. And now we've got a new Pharaoh that's sitting on the throne. And he sees these people developing and multiplying so quickly that if Egypt were to have an enemy, all it would take would be for these people to side with the enemy and Egypt would fall. So his desire was, let's just make slaves out of them. That's what he did. And he made their bondage heavy. And it's at this point we begin to read about Moses who came on the scene. And through a series of events, Moses is over here in the land of Midian. He's fled from Pharaoh because of those circumstances. And he's in a land serving as a shepherd. And he's leading sheep around through that wilderness of Sinai, learning the land because God has a mission for him. He said, I'm going to send you back down to Egypt. That Pharaoh that you were afraid of, he's dead. You go back and I want you to lead my people out. Well, through a series of events, Moses began to do that. And he started to lead those people out. And it's that period of time that we read about all the horrible plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt. The last of those plagues was the death of the firstborn in every house. And that included death even in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's son died. He gave order that the children of Israel be cast out of the land of Egypt. And Moses began to then lead them out with all of the possessions that the Egyptians had. Now the irony of that, turn back with me again, if you would please, to the Genesis account and look in chapter 15. 
in Genesis chapter 15, the text tells us that Abraham, he's traveled as a sojourner, and he's over there in the land of Canaan. And he finds, lo and behold, there's other folks that live there. And so his question is, Lord, how shall I know this land's going to be mine? Now that would seem to be a, a good question. And you'll note beginning in verse 13, God said to Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. He tells us in verse 16 that it's going to take four generations for that to come to pass. And 400 plus years have occurred. And now Moses is down there to lead these people out of the land of Egypt. Now prefacing their exit of Egypt, they were to observe the Passover during which time a death angel, as it were, would come through the land of the Egyptians and everybody that did not have the blood of the lamb over the door and around the door, death would enter into that house. And this is what we're reading, the death of the firstborn of every house, including the house of Pharaoh. But it did not enter into the house of those who were the children of Israel who had put the blood on their doorpost and the beam above the door. And they were to celebrate this by eating a feast that was called the Passover. And they were to eat that feast every year and talk to their children about the great things that God did to bring them out of this land. Now, interestingly enough, the point that I want you to see is in Exodus chapter 12 in verse 37. It says there, And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. Now if you turn in your Bible just a little further over, you get a more accurate number. In Exodus chapter 38 verse 26, it tells us that there were 603,550 fighting men. Now when you factor into that number, those who were younger, those who were women, those who were older. Scholars tell us, and some of you perhaps are mathematicians and can do the statistics on that to come out with the number of how many people about so that it would be considering all of them. And I'm told that was in the neighborhood of two to three million people. That's a lot of people. Two to three million now way back here, we were talking about Abraham. It was just he and Sarah. They didn't have children. Can you imagine the irony in Abraham's mind when God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation of people. But you know, interestingly enough, when they came out, we found that during the days of Joseph, only 70 went down from Canaan down into Egypt. But when they came out, we've got two to three million that came out about 400 years later. You know why? Because that's what God promised. And he never fails on what he's promised, never. Two to three million that came out. And as you turn in your Bible to the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 19, read with me beginning in verse 5. These people have crossed over the Red Sea. They've seen the plagues that God brought upon the ruin of Egypt. They've seen the Egyptian army destroyed. And here they are now at the foot of Mount Sinai, two to three million people. 
And the text tells us in verse 5, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be mine own possession from among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What did God call them? God called them a holy nation. Wasn't that what he promised Abraham? I will make of you a great nation. But God promised something else to Abraham. God said that I'm going to give you this land. And he described it back over in the text of Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to give you this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river uh, Euphrates. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15 and let's note that. In verse 18 of Genesis 15, it says, In that day Jehovah made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Raphaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. You say, Preacher, how would you pronounce I've pronounced them once or twice, and I may not have them right. But I simply want you to observe who these people were because we're going to look at this again. But the land is described. from. And interestingly enough, as you turn to Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus, the 20th chapter, after they come out of Egypt and they're called a great nation, we learn that God gives them the law, the law of Moses. And you'll note that in chapter 20, verse 1, God spake all these words, saying, I am Jehovah thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You know, when we read the Ten Commandments, somebody said, well, all you have to do is keep the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments weren't given to everybody. Did you know that? I think that most of you do. But the Ten Commandments were not given to everybody. Most folks think that's what we're all under, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to those who were brought up out of the house of bondage. That would be the nation of Israel. We've got a nation now, and God is giving to this nation of people a law. A nation needs a law. But this was God's law, and it was given to these people that were brought up out of the land of Egypt, this holy nation. Now, as we look just a little bit more at that, we've seen the extent of the land from the river of Egypt on the south to the river Euphrates on the north, and the people... They make some terrible mistakes. During this journey to the land that God had promised, they began to fuss and murmur and complain, and they had all kinds of difficulties, grumbling against God multiple times. And as we turn in our Bibles to the book of Numbers, we read of the consequence of their fussing. In Numbers chapter 14, begin reading in verse 29. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 29, God said, Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, that have murmured against me, ye, surely ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear that I would make you dwell therein. Say, pray, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have rejected. Now how long is it going to take for all those folks to die? God tells them, verse 33, forty years. Take 40 years for this generation to die. So what do they do in the meantime? They wander in the wilderness until this generation dies. God provides for them, but they don't get to set foot in the land that God had promised. And through the process, we note that Moses had committed sin. 
He took it upon himself to claim credit for delivering these people. And in chapter 20 and verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said unto them, Here now ye rebels, shall we bring you forth water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and smote the rock uh, with his rod twice, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation drank and their cattle. And Jehovah said unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believe not in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, Therefore ye shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given to them. Well, you say, why is that important? Well, Moses, as great as he was, he did not get to enter into the promised land. And as you turn further in your Bible over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, God took Moses upon Mount Nebo and allowed him to view the land. Now, the sequence of these events is very important to us. In verse 30, uh, chapter 34, Beginning in verse 1, it says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab up and to, um, upon Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho. And Jehovah showed him all the land of Gilead, showed it all to him. And in verse 4 it says, And Jehovah said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it thee to thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of Jehovah, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of Jehovah, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. And Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. We want to simply note that Moses was privileged to see the land, all of it, but he wasn't privileged to enter into it. I'm passed with military and, and have access to technology and all that. I met a fellow in, in Lancaster one time that showed me an interesting computer program. He said, this program, you can click a dot here on the map, and then you can click a dot over here on the map, and he said, if there's no obstruction, it'll draw a straight line from point A to point B. You, you're familiar with programs like that. Well, I thought it was very interesting because it illustrated something to me. I said, click over here on Mount Nebo. And he did. And I said, now click on Mount Hermon up here to the north. Mount Hermon's about 10,000 foot in elevation. Could Moses see from Mount Nebo to Mount Hermon up here to the north of the land of Canaan? Well, yeah, straight line. That computer put it right on there. I said, now click over here, if you would, on the Mediterranean Sea to the west. Could Moses see from Mount Nebo to the ocean? Oh, straight line. He could see it right away. I said, click over here south, down here toward Egypt. Could Moses see that far? And when you keep in mind that the land of Canaan was about 150 miles long and perhaps averaged about 70, 50, 70 miles wide, could you see 70 miles on a clear day from the top of a mountain? Could you? Well, yeah, you could see that far. Could Moses? Well, yeah, he could too. Now the point being is that by computers we can look and see. Moses could see that. He saw the very land that God had promised from A to Z, saw every bit of it, but he was not allowed to go into it because he had committed sin. But the point is, on the timeline, at the death of Moses, he saw the land that God had promised to Abraham. God said so, but he didn't get to go in. And as you turn the page over to the book of Joshua, Joshua now is the new leader, and he's preparing to lead these people into the promised land. 
And you'll note in Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 through verse 6, it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, into the land which I give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your feet or foot shall tread upon to you have I given it as I spake to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, uh, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the going down of the sea, toward the, uh, the great sea, rather, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your border. You see the exact land that we saw on the map a few moments ago. Now Joshua is told, you're going to be the one that leads them there. And in verse 6 he said, Be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt cause this people to inherit the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, and observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee, turn not from it, to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest have good success whithersoever thou goest. What a profound text. Joshua, you're going to lead them into the land. This is it. Now as you read in Joshua chapter 1 all the way through to Joshua chapter 11, you're reading of the conquering of the land that God promised unto Abraham. And when you get to Joshua chapter 11, you might take note of verse 23, for there it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that Jehovah spake unto Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto the children, or unto the Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land had rest from war. Question, did God do what he promised? Promised Abraham this land. From up here the river Euphrates down to the river of Egypt, from over here on the west, uh, the east to the wilderness, to the west, the great sea. Joshua's done the very thing. He led them into the land, conquered the land. Now the larger portion of the remainder of the book of Joshua is the dividing of the land among the peoples. And as you come to chapter 21, look at your Bible. Joshua chapter 21 and look at verse 48. Joshua chapter 21 verse 48. In this text, I said 48, 43, it says, So Jehovah gave unto Israel all the land. Well, what land? All the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and what did they do with it? They possessed it and dwelt in it. Now let me ask you, just on the premise of that one verse, did God do what he promised? Sure did. The very thing that he promised to Abraham, way back yonder in Genesis chapter 12, God says through Joshua that he's done that very thing. Now read on, verse 44. And Jehovah gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers, and there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. Jehovah delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught, not a thing. There failed not aught of any good thing which Jehovah had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. You know why? God promised that. And God always does, always, what He promises that He will do. Now, I've had opportunity, perhaps you have too, to talk with people who say, well, no, that, that, that's, not, that's not true. God didn't do what He said regarding the land, and that's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Have you ever heard that argument? At the second coming of Christ, all Jews are going to somehow miraculously be transported to the land of Canaan, and the promise that God made to Abraham is then going to be fulfilled. That's not what Joshua said. In fact, it's amazing to me how that Joshua not only said it in chapter 21, but he said it in chapter 23. Look at your Bible. In chapter 23 it says, And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. You know what's about to happen to Joshua? He's about to die. 
I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which Jehovah your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass. Not one thing has failed. Not one thing. Now it's disturbing to me when somebody tells me God don't do what he promised. Joshua said he did. And I'm confident that God did because here's the inspired writer affirming that he did. And it fits on the timeline as we shall see in just a little bit just exactly what God said. Now I want to suggest to you that the retention of the land was conditional. God gave it to them. But it was not, contrary to the thinking of many, a perpetual promise that it's always going to be yours. As you turn in your Bible, we mentioned these verses the other night in our study, but turn back, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and note during the time of Moses as he's leading them in this wilderness, he warned them in verse 25 it is, For thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have been long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image in the form of anything, and shall do that which is evil in the sight of Jehovah thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto ye go over the Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed, and Jehovah will scatter you among the peoples, and ye shall be left few in number among the nations, whether Jehovah shall lead you away. Consequence, if you go to worshiping idols, here's what's going to happen to you. And you'll note on the board we have a whole laundry list of passages where that's repeated to them. Actually, before they went in and took the land, time and time again, in chapter 8, chapter 28, chapter 30, over and again, it said the same thing. And in fact, as you turn in your Bible during the what we refer to as United Kingdom period, when David was reigning over the land of Israel from the river Euphrates uh, down to the river of Egypt, the text tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and in verse 3, that he smote Moab and measured them, verse 3, David smote Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and he went to recover his dominion at the river. That would be the Euphrates River. And strangely enough, in discussing these things with folks in times gone by, somebody asked me the question, how can you recover something you never had? I said, that's exactly right. Now you've got it. Well, you can't recover it if you never had it. The fact that you recovered it is evidence that you've had it, isn't it? David recovered it. He took it back. Well, they had lost some of it because of their corruption. During the days, but David took it back. And as you turn back over to 1 Kings chapter 4, during the days of King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 4, reading beginning in verse 21, it tells us that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms. What did he rule over? Read your Bible. He ruled over the kingdoms from the river, that's the river Euphrates, unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now it kind of sounds like that God did just what he promised that he would do. And you'll note then in 1 Kings chapter 12 that Solomon's son Rehoboam made such a foolish decision and the kingdom then was divided. And so now, from this point forward in Old Testament history, we have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, strangely enough, did not have a single good king. Every single one of them. From the very beginning of the reign of King Jeroboam, they worshipped idols. 
And king after king after king reigned, and they just waxed worse and worse. Not a good king. Now, you remember what Moses told them back over there in Deuteronomy 4? If you worship and serve idols, I'm going to destroy you. You remember what Joshua told them? If you worship and serve idols, I'll take you out of this land just as surely as you were brought into it. Now, they're beginning to worship idols. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them, but they did not repent. And so in the year 721, 722, depending upon what source you read, we find that the king of Assyria, as we illustrated last night, came down into the northern kingdom and took the city of Samaria captive. Their capital city was then destroyed. They became the slaves of the Assyrians. And you would like to think that the southern kingdom would see that, as we mentioned last night. About 130 some odd years later, they began to do the same thing. And the king of Babylon conquered the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., 536 B.C., 586. I keep turning those numbers around. 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell. And Jeremiah said that in 70 years, God's going to bring you back. 70 years passed, as we talked about last night, and we learned then that, that in 536, Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, wrote a decree and allowed them to go back. And so we now have the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. We have the rebuilding of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And during the days of Nehemiah, look at what Nehemiah said. In Nehemiah chapter 9, as he has rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 9, look at verse 7. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. The text tells us, Thou art Jehovah the God who didst choose Abraham and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave unto him the name Abraham and foundest his heart faithful before thee and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the, the Ammonite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, <coughs> the Girgashite, to give it to his seed and hast performed thy words for thou art righteous. All those heights, did you remember those from where we read them in Genesis chapter 15? Nehemiah now, many years later, he's affirming that God always does what he says. And he brought you into this land just like he promised. And now during the days of the restoration, that's exactly what he did. Now what can we affirm about what God has promised? God made of Abraham a great nation, just like he promised. God brought them into the land, all the land, from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, just like he promised. David and Solomon ruled over all the land, and tribute was brought to them, taxes from other places, including all that land. And now we find that they have been restored to that land because God always does just what he promises. You see, there's no promise left concerning the land that has not been fulfilled. Now, that's important to us. But there's another promise that we haven't talked about, and that is the seed promise. Now, the reason that Paul that is that takes us back to Galatians chapter 3. That's the promise that Paul is talking about. And I want to call your attention again to Galatians chapter 3, and let's notice that. With this history behind us, we're well prepared to look at this text and see what Paul has said. He said that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, verse 14. And then in verse 16, God spoke promises, plural, to Abraham. 
But you'll notice that the giving of the law did not disannul the promise. What is that? That's the coming of Christ. And you'll notice that God had granted to, to Abraham by promise, singular. He's talking about the promise of the Christ, the seed. And in verse 19, what then is the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise hath been made. And then you'll notice in verse 22, but the scripture shut up all things under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to them that believe. Well, this promise was made to Abraham that involved all flesh going to be blessed through this seed of Abraham. Then when you look at verse 26, For ye are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Who is that all? Jews or Gentiles. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. There can be neither Jew nor Greek. There can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male and female. For you are all one man in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then are ye heirs according to promise. Now is that exciting to you? It is to me. It don't make any difference who you are. It don't make any difference what your bloodline is. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, it doesn't make any difference. Bond, free, male, free, doesn't make any difference. In Christ Jesus, you can be an heir of Abraham because that's what God promised Abraham. In thy seed, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have one that came along, the seed of woman, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here we have one that is born, the lineage of the seed of David that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here we have one that is born of a virgin, Isaiah said, in Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 14. And lo and behold, he is indeed of the seed of Abraham. As we can see, his genealogy traced through the accounts of Matthew and Luke. And what do we learn? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that's the point of emphasis of the Apostle Paul. Now to Abraham were promises, plural, spoken, and to his seed. He saith not seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now here we have something identified for us. You see, the nation of Israel is not the one through whom all families of the earth would be blessed. The nation of Israel is not special in that regard, but the seed that's being spoken of is the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, and He would be a blessing unto all families of the earth. And you say, well, why is that important to me? Well, do you believe that God keeps His promises? Well, yeah, He does. Well, let's then note that Jesus came, just as we see in Genesis 3, 15, fulfilled in Galatians 4, the seed of woman came that we might receive the adoption of son. When did he come? In the fullness of time, at the exact time that God had in mind, he came. What did he come to do? He came to provide something that would be a blessing to all families of the earth. But we note also that not only was he the seed of Abraham, but he was of the tribe of Judah, just like we read back over there in Genesis chapter 49. And in Hebrews chapter 7, we learn that the Son of God was from a different tribe of the priest of Levi. He could not be priest on earth because he was of the tribe of Judah. The text tells us so. Seed of David. Read the account. In Luke chapter 1, quite a fascinating story as you read beginning in verse 26. Just keep reading. The quotation is from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. So here we have one born of a virgin. 
just exactly like you read beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And you recall how that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. And how that Joseph was mindful to put her away because he thought that she had committed fornication. An angel of God appeared to Joseph and told him, no, that's not so. The child that she bears is of God. And so we read then about the promised seed of woman. How does that relate to us? Jesus came according to everything that God had said. Not one thing failed, but then he was crucified. Now the irony of that is, is just fascinating. You read in Mark's account in chapter 11, as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, how did the people receive him? And certainly this was right before they crucified him. It says, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom that cometh the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Can you imagine such a triumphal entry into the city? They thought, here comes our king. And in just a few days, just a few days, my friends, what are they saying? What then shall I do with him who is called the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil has he done? And they cried out the more, Crucify him. What swung the pendulum? Here comes our king. Let's kill him. You see, the idea of Jesus, no, surely that can't be our king. No, no, no. But you see, how does that relate to us? He was crucified, but he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. Now, I want to suggest to you, brethren, if, you, if you've not been paying attention, you listen to this point. In Acts chapter 2, we read Peter's sermon beginning in verse 22. We want to call our attention to some things. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter said in verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, even as ye yourselves know. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hand of lawless men did crucify and slay. Pause just a moment. Did you notice that they knew who Jesus was by the miracles that he did? Did you notice that Peter draws their attention? You crucified this man named Jesus. But then in the next verse it says, Whom God raised up having loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Peter has affirmed something they don't believe. He has affirmed that this Jesus that they had crucified, God raised him from the dead. Now Peter begins to cite Old Testament history. David said concerning the Messiah, the Christ, David said concerning him that his soul would not be left in Hades and his flesh would not decay. Now Peter's application of that in verse 29, he said, Brethren, I may say unto you freely of the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us unto this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins he would set one upon his throne. You read about that in 2 Samuel 7. He foreseeing this spake of the resurrection of the Christ, that neither was he left unto Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus did God raise up, whereof we are all witnesses, being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he poured forth, 
he poured forth this which ye see and hear. For David ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. And then Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly. You believe it with all your being. But God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. Now my friends and dear brethren, you put yourself in that audience. You hear those words. Here you are one of the crowd that cried out, Crucify him! Kill him! And now here the Apostle Peter stood before you and presented to you indisputable evidence that this one that you cried out to be crucified, God raised him from the dead, and we are all witnesses of that. He raised him from the dead and exalted him at his right hand and declared him to be both Lord and Christ. What would that do for you? I dare say you would say a bit more than whoops. He's just charged you with killing the Son of God that the prophets had prophesied about all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He came, lived, and you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. You know, the irony of this text to me is they don't explain what they did. They don't begin to make excuses. They don't say, but we thought, no. No justification on that. They just said, what shall we do? They realized what sin is, didn't they? They realized what they did. And Peter said, repent ye and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Now listen carefully to the text. Look at your Bible. For to you is the promise. To you is the promise to your children and to all that are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. I hope you never look at Acts 2, 37 again the same way through 39. What's Peter preaching in Acts 2? He's preaching the promise. Oh, he's not telling them you're going to receive a land. He's not telling them you're going to be a great nation. He's telling them you can be forgiven of your sin. When he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For to you is the promise and to your children. Is he telling them, you be baptized and you can have spiritual gifts, you can perform miracles? Oh, not hardly. Is he telling them, you, you be baptized and you'll receive some kind of a mystical something, you'll feel some kind of a funny way? No, sir, that's not what he's promising. What had the Holy Spirit promised from day that sin had been committed? He'd promised forgiveness. That the head of the serpent would be stomped. And that would be done by the seed of woman who came, lived, died, raised from the dead to offer his blood at the right hand of God as an atonement for your sin. Now to you is the promise, to your children, and to all that are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call on them. You know what that means? That's for you, Jews. That's for your children, Jews. That's for those that are afar off, Mr. Gentile. And as many as the Lord our God shall call. You can have forgiveness. 
Now, I want to suggest to you, friends, that that became the preaching of the apostles throughout the New Testament. That's what they preached. And you can see that multiple cases. That's what they preached. Look, if you will, at just a few, and then the lesson will be yours. I want you to notice especially Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is the second time that Peter preaches the same sermon. Preached it in Acts 2. Same thing in Acts 3. And in Acts 3 he says, Ye are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying unto Abraham, And thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now there's the promise quote from the Old Testament. What is it? Unto you first God having raised up his servants sent him to bless you. What the turning every one of you from your iniquities. Forgiveness of sins. That's what the promise is and that's what Peter told them. You can have forgiveness of your sins. Same thing. Bless you how? Forgiveness of your sins. Look at it with me. In turning every one of you from your iniquities, you can have the remission of your sins. Look at it further. Galatians 3, 29. You can be Abraham's seed, heirs, according to promise. Now, if that don't jump off the page at you, I want to use one other illustration. And then you'll see it, I hope. And I've got a laundry list of passages here. And I'm not going to go through them for sake of time, but I do want you to be aware of them and see that this was what New Testament preaching consisted of. They preached the promise. Brethren, look with me, and I appreciate your patience on time. But if you'll look in Hebrews chapter 11, I hope this just jumps off the page at you from now on in your life as long as you live. Hebrews chapter 11, we look at that and call it the hall of faith, don't we? And we read of the faith of Abel. We read of the faith of Enoch. We read of the faith of... I'm sorry, verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, plural, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What are we learning about these great characters of faith in the preceding verses? They all died before the land promise came to pass. They all died before there was any such thing as a great nation. And certainly they died before the coming of Christ. But read further in verse 32. And what shall I say more? For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises. Pause and look at that. When you read of these characters, they were a part of that great nation, weren't they? You read of these characters, they lived in the land that God had promised. And as great as these characters were, and the apostle tells us that the world was not worthy, but as you drop down to verse 39, read your Bible. And these all having had witness born to them through their faith received not the promise. Singular. What did these Old Testament worthies not receive that these Hebrews had received? You see... These in Hebrews had received the forgiveness of their sins through Christ. Those Old Testament worthies had to look forward to the coming of Christ. But these Hebrews could look back to the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins through His blood. All of these Old Testament worthies received not the promise. But look at what you've got. You have the promise. The promise. You can enjoy the forgiveness of your sin. You've been so kind to listen this morning.
Perhaps I'm talking to someone who is in need to obey the gospel, to be baptized into the death of Christ, believing that He is the promised Savior, repenting of your sin. Would you obey the gospel this morning? Be baptized. Become a Christian. Enjoy the blessing of the promise of the forgiveness of your sins. That was in the mind of God before time began. You put your name on that. That's you. This is what God did for me. It's what He did for you. He gave His Son so you could be forgiven. Maybe you've obeyed the gospel and not living a righteous life. Would you repent of that? Call upon God to forgive you through the blood of His Son. That's available to you. If you be subject to the invitation, we can help you. Make that known, please, as we stand together and while we sing.